this is going to be a hilarious soundbite. In a similar way to serial killers, authors have particular patterns for how they are successful. Mm -hmm. And those patterns matter in predicting their behavior to a point where if you know you are this particular type of author, then you need to feel like you can do those things and not be judged for them. If you're a busy mom, but you have writing goals and dreams that you're working on, this podcast is here to help you achieve them. My name is Jackie, and I'm a mother and an author of a self-published young adult novel and a firm believer in the power of moms to create. This podcast is about finding inspiration and insight. It's about learning new ways to fuel your writing and to share your writing with the world and sometimes actually all the time it's about taking a moment to just laugh at and appreciate the crazy everyday chaos that is being a writing mother hey guys it's jackie and welcome to another episode of these moms write today i'm really excited to share an interview with author and writing coach becca syme becca is a usa today best-selling author of small town romance and cozy mystery. She also writes the Dear Writer series of nonfiction books. In addition, she hosts QuickCast, a YouTube and podcast show on writing coaching. And she is the founder of the popular Better Faster Academy. Plus, she has individually coached thousands of authors toward better success in their careers and lives. At the heart of these amazing accomplishments is Becca's incredible understanding and compassion around helping writers flourish, which I think is so important right now because one thing I've been hearing over and over in Facebook and Twitter is how burnt out mom writers are. This one comment from one of the members in the podcast Facebook group, Emily Potter, really sums this feeling up well. She says, the frustrating part of writer's block is not knowing the cause. If that sounds like you, then Becca's talk may be just the thing you need to start understanding why you're blocked and what you can do about it. Please welcome Becca Syme. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Becca. I am really excited to talk to you. I am such a fan of your work, your coaching work, your books, the the academy. And so I can't wait to talk about all of those things. I was just super delighted when you said you'd come on the show. Yeah. Yeah, Um, I love doing podcasts. Like it's just... I don't know what it is. Maybe my communication strength. I just love podcasts. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's yeah, it's definitely my treat. And the the all the listeners out there are the writing mums. I think this is going to be such a great value for them today. So what are you um, what are you excited about most right now? So in general in life, I'm the most excited that it's sunny outside today. <laughs> we were talking before we started recording. I live in a place where it is very often snowing, uh, especially at this time of year. And so to see the sun is just so it's amazing how much that affects our well-being, like just having good weather. It, it's kind of incredible. So um, in writing, I'm probably the most excited that we are out of the holidays because I think it's always hard to, uh, to be writing and releasing in the holidays. And I always kind of like the spring when it feels like it gets back into normal life again. So, um, yeah, that's probably my, my answer. Awesome. Yeah. I found it also is making a big impact on mood and energy. I know you talk a lot about energy and how it impacts writing and it is one of those things that it really, has a big impact on like how we are in the world. 
Yep. Especially the last couple of years, I think uh, not enough of us have had to face before just how difficult it is when our routines change or when things change that we don't want. Uh, we don't we don't choose when things change. Um, and so to have something that I would say, like, I'm a relatively get out and do things person most of the time, <laughs> most of the time when I'm not working. Um, and so to have that big change, it just reminds me so much being a couple of years into this, that it's like, I need to get as much as I can of what I, what used to bring me energy, because I haven't been as conscious about that the last couple of years. Oh, absolutely. And so you're, I know you've coached thousands of writers and you've written you know, five books and you have a better, faster academy, but you're also a writer. And so I'm just, mm -hmm. I'd love to start with your story. How did you get into writing and then coaching? Oh yeah. I think I always wanted to be a writer on some level. Like a lot of us who come in, who really enjoyed books and reading as kids and had this sense of like how important story is for us in the way we make sense of the world and how we make meaning and that kind of thing. Um, so I've always been really interested in it. I was an English major um, in undergrad. Um, I did part of an MFA after that, um, kind of hoping that I would become a writer. Realized that you don't actually take an MFA to become a writer. You usually <laughs> take an MFA to become a writing teacher um, because it's the terminal degree for creative writing. And so when one of my professors made a comment about that, you know, we're preparing you to teach. And I was kind of like, oh, that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not here. Like I want to be a writer. And anyway, that that's a very long story that I won't tell, but um, <laughs> essentially um, when I realized that you didn't need to have education mm. sort of to be good at writing or to be able to write commercially, I had to get a real job after mm. that. And by real, I mean like one that paid the bills at the moment, not that yeah. writing is a real job. It is. And I got more seriously into writing after um, I made that transition into sort of the workforce and started coaching weirdly around that, like that time when I was getting out of the MFA program, um, because I came across the Clifton Strengths uh, assessment. And so uh, when I started writing more seriously, like wanting to really publish, and joining some writing organizations and being part of like the, the, the climb up the mountain, I guess, for lack of a better word, started indie publishing in 2012 and uh, was able to do that full time for quite a while, which was nice, but, but not always sustainable <laughs> because mm. of my, uh, my work pace. Uh, what was interesting was I got into coaching specifically because the indie movement created a lot of small business owners in a industry where not everyone had intended to become a small business owner. And because of the consulting and coaching that I had been doing since early in the 2000s, I ended up helping a lot of my friends and like coaching mm. them in their Clifton strengths and trying to help them, you know, understand themselves and how to work better. And out of that sort of grew the Better Faster Academy. And I started doing that more full-time when the demand became higher, but I definitely didn't intend to get into this, to do coaching. Like I, <laughs> I intended to be a writer and I was a full-time writer for a while, but, but this need just became more pressing mm -hmm. uh, to have somebody who could both speak as a writer and also speak as uh, someone who had coached and consulted with people about success. So yeah, that's kind of my, I guess, origin story, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, is there, there usually like some parents 
die in the origin story. Or <laughs> right. Yes. Have a, was there a radioactive? <laughs> not at all spider? tragic. No. no. Okay. Okay. That's <laughs> it. That's refreshing. That's refreshing. I did. I did lose a job, which was interesting. That was, Ooh. and I talk about this in one of my books where that was kind of the impetus for me um, to take the writing more seriously, mm. because I realized that as much as I was counting on a job to pay the bills, it was still not as reliable to have an outside job as I wanted it to be. And there were some health issues like involved in all that. But when I lost the job, I thought, okay, I've got you know, whatever, six, three months or six months of severance or whatever they gave me at the time. And let me just try and see if I can make this work. So mm. that's probably the most like difficult thing that happened because losing that job was very painful. I mm. loved that job, but oh. it, I lost something that I liked to be able to do something that I hit that had always been my dream. So I feel mm. like I can't really complain about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you mentioned, you know, there was a demand. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you are, I would say, one of the most successful book writing coaches there are. Um, and there are, you know, a lot of people in this mm -hmm. area. Do you think, I know you talk a lot about Clifton Strength Finders, which um, Finder done once a long time ago. So I'm vaguely familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I know it's quite a profound, you know, appreciative based, um, mm -hmm. approach. Is it, is it, do you think it's that, that is, mm -hmm. makes you s such a incredible coach? Is it your, your combination of experience? What do you think? I think a lot of it is being a writer, like being a writer and knowing what it feels like to be a writer from the inside. Um, and I see this, especially with people mm -hmm. who say like, oh, I went to talk to my therapist about my writing issues and the advice that they gave me was this. And I'd be like, oh, don't do that. Please God, like, do not. <laughs> <laughs> do not do that. Not that the therapist is a bad person, but just that being able to understand writers from the inside is very different. So I think it's partly that. Um, I do, I credit the Clifton Strengths tool with such a huge um, part of my success because the tool itself has such veracity. Mm -hmm. um, it has the highest test retest in the psychometric environment. Um, it's an extremely um, well-developed and intentionally well-developed tool um, because the person who developed it was looking for it to be the best that's out there, like the mm -hmm. thing that would be the best. So they were, they were willing to go after um, that prize, which meant that they had to work harder, I think, than, mm. um, than the way some tests are created, which is sort of like, Hey, I noticed that there are four kinds of people yeah. in here. And, and again, not that that's bad because it has a usefulness. Um, but I do find that the Clifton strengths model, if people are honest, when they take the test, it is more transformational than anything that I've ever seen before, just because of it's so individualized. And that's what I would really credit like if I was to say, here's why Becca is successful, I would say <laughs> it's because I individualize a hundred percent of everything that we do to the person who's sitting in front of me. Mm. And I don't assume that I'm right about anything when someone's sitting in front of me. If I make an assumption and it's incorrect, I correct it in myself, not in them. Um, because I find that so much of what happens when we go to someone to help us is that they make a lot of assumptions about what we need based mm. on what they think we need instead right. of on what we really need, which is often just we communicate differently than they do and they don't realize that. Mm. Um, so I would really create, like I would credit 
the ability to coach well that that all of our coaches have at the Better Faster Academy in that we really follow that model, which is that every single person is completely different. There is no industry standard. There is no best practice. There is no thing that all writers do. Like there just is no one thing that everyone should do, including the strengths, by the way, like including coaching, um, because everybody has different needs. And so I, I really believe that that's what makes us different, especially because when I first started, and this is back in like 2014, 2013, everyone was looking for the one silver bullet, Mm. you know, like the one thing that would make them better or you know, faster or whatever. And there were a lot of systems that were coming out, like do this system and write faster, do this system and market better, do this system and sell more. And I would see like everything, it worked for about a standard deviation of people. And then everyone outside that would not be helped by whatever system that was. And then I would see that unhelped people would come to me and I'd be like, oh, well, this is why it doesn't work because you're this way and this way, and you have this background and this availability and blah, blah, blah. And they'd be like, oh, I thought it was me. Like they thought they were the problem. And I was like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. Like that, the problem is that you're, you're not the right fit for that Mm. thing. And so if you imagine all of the books that are out there for writers and all the systems that are out there work for about 60% of the people who read them, but it's a different 60% for every single book. So you don't know for sure what you can and can't listen to unless you have some kind of rubric for yourself about like, what am I capable of? What can I do? And can't I do? Where are my biggest abilities and where do I need to just not spend my time? Mm -hmm. And so part of what we did was give some more helpful rubrics for how to make those choices. Yeah. I love what you're saying because I feel like writing is so like amorphous and like murky and like there's so much ego, you know, it wrapped up in all of that. You know, we all have like ideas of what a writer should be and what a writer means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're almost saying like, nope, this is like, let's, let's apply like a systematic approach to understand where your strengths are, what your yeah. needs are. And then you can, you know, wade into the world of writing books and support and, and potentially understand why things haven't worked for you in the past. Like I just mm-hmm. was scrolling on one of the social medias. And I came across a meme where someone had a fainting couch, like someone like an old Victorian woman was on a fainting couch and it was writers pretending to have writer's block so they can procrastinate. (laughs) And I was so in that moment, I was like, I get why someone would post that because if you don't get writer's block, it would feel like such an unnecessary thing for you to see the way other people deal with writer's block. But when mm-hmm. you assume that because you don't get writer's block, no one get right gets writer's block. Mm-hmm. That is literally the most egocentric thing that I can think of. And, but it happens with everything. <laughs> yeah. It's well, I don't struggle with this. So no one should, or mm-hmm. this is easy for me. So it should be easy for everyone. And I think the if you want hundred percent of people to be able to have success on some level, you have to be willing to customize because by nature, when you don't customize and you make a system that is supposed to work for everyone, it, it doesn't and can't. So then you're by nature saying, 
well, most of you aren't going to succeed at this. So good luck. <laughs> like, and to me, I'd rather see us get a hundred percent of people feeling like they are where they're supposed to be. And so if you don't get writer's block. Awesome. Great. So grateful that you exist because there needs to be something that's different about everybody. But if you don't get writer's block, assuming that other people can't get it because you don't get it is mm -hmm. part of what is wrong with the industry. Because then when we don't have empathy for other people and we don't believe them when they say, this is what's happening to me, mm -hmm. then we can't solve their problem. We can only make it harder for them. So for me, it's just basic kindness, basically. Right. Yeah. You're kind of like a, a writing investigator. Like you're yeah. like, <laughs> yes, uh, what's that that is exactly. That is so, <laughs> so what I used to call myself, which is, this is like going back into the annals of Becca's weird mind. I was the hugest <laughs> criminal minds fan and still am. <laughs> and I used to call myself the author profiler yes. because I'd be like, I can tell you yes. pretty much like within, you know, almost, I feel like sometimes it's just such a high level of accuracy why something won't work for you. So like the tagline of my podcast is anyone can tell you what worked for them and they can say it might not work for you, but they can't tell you why mm. I can tell you why. Mm -hmm. Like that's the, that's the thing, because as a profiler, quote unquote, and I'm using air quotes, so nobody can think <laughs> but you, but as a quote unquote profiler, um, it's my job to decide which pattern you are fitting based on what you're, what you've told me is true about you. And then to try to help you have success. This is where the profiler falls apart, right? Because it's like, we don't want serial killers to be more <laughs> successful. We want to be more successful at catching them. That's why profilers exist. Um, but why I said author profiler was in a, in a similar way to serial killers, this is going to be a hilarious soundbite in a similar way to serial killers. Authors have particular patterns for how they are successful. Mm -hmm. And those patterns matter in predicting their behavior to a point where if you know, you are this particular type of author, then you need to feel like you can do those things and not be judged for them. Mm -hmm. Including things like if you are a fast writing author and you always get judged by people for writing too fast. You can't possibly be writing good books if you're writing mm. too fast. Not true. There are some people who would not write better books if they slowed down. Mm. It's not possible for them to write better books by slowing down. Conversely, there are some people who could not write better books by speeding up. They actually write better books when they are, when they write slower. Mm. So knowing that I fit one of those two patterns and being able to stand up and say, oh, wait a minute, I write 12 books or 24 books a year. That doesn't mean that my books all suck and everybody else's books are better. Oh no. And it doesn't mean that objectively my books suck. Oh no, that's not what the speed is about the speed is only about how you create the books, not about what quality it is. But if we don't stop and take the time to notice that those patterns exist, then we invalidate like half of human existence, which is to me again, is I just don't think that's a good way to be in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I wonder if some of that, you know, for me, hearing someone wrote, you know, 12, 24 books in a year, I would probably immediately be like, oh, I feel yeah. worthless. And so I might right. be tempted to turn around and say, your books are probably stupid. 
you know, <laughs> just because comparisonitis, right? Um, right. When trying to justify the way I do it mm-hmm. is uh, the way we often do that is by saying, well, if they write fast books, then they must be crappy mm-hmm. or vice versa. If mm-hmm. you're, if you're writing a slow book, you're taking too much time, right? Yeah. Like whatever way it is that we judge each other. I feel like there's so much context that we don't understand about why people write fast or why people write slow. And that's just one example, right? But there's so much context we don't understand behind why they make the decisions they make that who, who is any one person to judge whether someone else's writing process is correct for them or not. And I guess that's why I say individualization is so important to me mm-hmm. is because I trust that when people say something to me, like, this is how I am, this is how I have to be, like, unless there's a reason for me to mistrust that, because I see the patterns are different, um, I'm going to believe them. And I think that's a big, a big part of what I like about this job. Mm-hmm. A trustworthy narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, yeah, unless I, you get an untrustworthy narrator and then that changes. Then the system falls apart, but yeah. you know. You say you've coached across so many, um, so many authors and the audience for the podcast here is, is writing moms. And there's often like the time crunch. I think a lot of internal guilt. Do you see any trends amongst your clients with that identity? Yeah. If I say, um, if I say most, right. And assuming that I am ignoring some outliers when I say most, but I would say most parents in general are both guilty that they write like on some level, especially again, like you said, you know, it's common for mothers to feel that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that also knowing that you have to give something up in order to do that thing, whatever it is, the thing that you want to do. Like I have to give up something that my kids might want or something my partner or spouse might want. If I'm going to take the time to do this, that's often what keeps us from making those commitments when Mm. we want to make more commitments is because we're always thinking in terms of like what's best for everyone, not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Um, And I think there's a lot of misinformation internally in us Hmm. about why we might do that. Like there's some reason, like I don't like my books enough or I don't believe in myself enough or I don't think I can do this. Like I have some kind of fear of success or fear of failure and therefore I'm retreating to the safety of my, you know, like parenting role or something like that. And I just Hmm. so rarely see that that's the case. What I almost always see is the case is there's too much to do and not enough time And in order for me to take time to do what I want to do, I have to make someone else not get what they want. And Mm -hmm. that is a much harder estimation internally when I feel like my job is to make sure that like these little human beings get raised in a way that will make them the best outcome for the future. And so a lot of my expectations of myself about my time have to do with what I think my job is, like what I Mm -hmm. think I'm going to be held accountable for by their behavior or by their adulthood or whatever, however Mm -hmm. people internalize that. Um, But I also want to say it can be really good for people to have to not get what they want sometimes, not just the mothers, but the families, like Mm -hmm. it can be really good for kids to hear no, for 
spouses and partners to hear no, for people to see boundaries being set. Like it can actually mm. be a beneficial teaching experience to, for me to take time for myself or for me to have a priority that doesn't involve anyone else in my family, because it helps us all to be autonomous people. And it helps us deal with how to be resilient. Right. So like, I think there's also those moments of knowing that sometimes it's good for us to have adversity and to provide adversity for other people, for us to disagree about things, for us to have, you know, um, to set boundaries and to say no, uh, can actually be really loving and helpful for other people. And that's what I tend to see is mm. not as discussed is the like, well, how do I say no to my own sleep? I hear that a lot, right? Like, well, just make, cause I, I actually heard a workshop once that was like, basically you need less sleep than you think you do. Um, and I was like, okay, like as productivity advice, that scares me a little bit because I think a lot of people are already like nationally trending is that we don't sleep as well as we should. Um, so that's dangerous. But if all I'm doing is taking time away from myself to do the writing, then I think that's sometimes where it's like, okay, there's, there's also some danger limits to that. Like I have to be able to say somebody else is responsible at this time, or I'm setting a boundary here for myself and that that can be really good and beneficial for the people you set the boundaries for and not just mm. for you. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, again, you know, I, I can speak from my own experience is that setting boundaries, even though it seems like it should be simple, is something that I always am constantly str struggling with. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, so I think that is really a great insight. It doesn't have to be about um, cutting down on your sleep, but thinking about intentionally setting boundaries and, and that there are positive, at, you know, outcomes from those. And maybe that's another fear that we have is that we won't be needed. And we, so maybe, you know, mm. in a way you don't want to foster that independence, like that part, that ego part of you again. Right. But like, again, when we are, you know, we want to tap into the higher self so that we can all grow. And I think, such a, I, I love the way you, you put that in such clear terms. Yeah. And I will say too, like, because I had a really great working mother, like not just an, as an example, but also, I mean, my mom worked like she loved what she did and she was gone sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she went to college when I was in middle school and was actually physically gone. Um, and I am so grateful that she did that as a female who got to see, like, I'll get emotional talking about this actually. Cause I know my mom feels guilty about it. Cause we talk mm -hmm. about it as adults. Oh. Um, and, and I'll be like, in the moment as a seventh grader, I was probably less than happy about it because I was very self-centered and in my own junk and dealing with middle school stuff. And I'm sure that I said some things as a seventh grader that were mm. not great for her to hear, but as an adult who now feels an extremely clear sense of responsibility about setting boundaries around other people's expectations of me, I mm. could not possibly have had a better role model mm. for that than my mom, um, because she was so clear about how much she loved us and how big of a priority we were for her and how everything that she did, she did for us. But I didn't get the sense that she was giving up everything of herself in order to do that. 
And because I saw her want to strive for success and want to matter and want her work to do something, it was like, I never question whether it's okay for me ever to do something as a female ever. Mm -hmm. I don't ever wonder like, oh, am I going to be listened to? Or, you know, do I, should I take this stage or should I do this thing? And so much of it is because my mom showed me that it didn't matter if I was, you know, having a family and, or having a job and like, I could do those things and be, and still have a great relationship with my parents and still raise what I think are my sister and I, two really well-adjusted kids who do not remember most (laughs) of the stuff that was hard because we had so much love and care. Um, And so I think moms also, or moms also don't give themselves enough credit for all the things they actually do that make your children believe that you love them and that you value them above everything. It feels like, well, if I'm not a hundred percent, then I'm zero. Mm. And I tell my mom all the time, like, I'm so grateful that you did that (laughs) because I think if she hadn't, I would have questioned myself when I showed up as such a driven person, like, Mm. you know, well, should I not be this way? Because my mom wasn't this way. And again, not that anybody's decisions are, are suspect because everybody does their best, but I'm just extremely grateful, like offering a perspective of an adult who had a very driven parent mm-hmm. who is so grateful for my mom making her choices to set boundaries around what we could and couldn't do because she wanted to do something else besides parenting, mm-hmm. um, which I appreciate. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. And what would your, so I did ask um, some like listeners, what would be the most important pieces of advice? You know, if you could pick Becca's brain, productivity, that was one of the big topics. Could you share Mm -hmm. anything else about that? Yeah. So the, the first thing I would do is to say, because not everybody's the same, there are some pieces of advice that won't work for everyone. So like, there are some parents who can't write in the morning, for instance, for both for intellectual creativity reasons. And, or like, if you have really young kids, sometimes they wake up when you wake up. And so (laughs) you can't get up earlier than them because then they just get up earlier and nobody's happy. Um, And so like, I would say, whatever it is that your particular issue is about your own productivity, there's a fix for it somehow. Mm -hmm. Like there is a fix for it. And it doesn't have to be, well, I can't get up and everybody says, get up you know, et cetera, I would say, great, well, let's look at what can we change about this? Like if my productivity is better at night, then maybe I sleep in a little later in the morning and I stay up a little later at night, or I have a a couple of weekend nights that I do that on and, and I'm not forcing myself to try to be a morning writer. Right. Mm. So that's the first piece is that because everyone's different, I think sometimes we feel like our problem is unsolvable and nothing Mm. is unsolvable. Like everything is solvable. (laughs) Um, And, but because again, it's customization. So it's not just looking at the systems that are out there, but at what my particular situation is. The other piece is a lot of parents. um, And I assume that because more writers that I've coached are women than men, um, that I assume that this is true equally 
but because a lot of parents have morning routines that require them getting kids to school at a certain time, an awful lot of parents will get on their phones first thing in the morning because it's the easy thing to do, right? Like I roll out of bed and I grab my phone and I'm on it. And then my kids get to school at nine o'clock and then I'm stuck at 9.30 with this need to keep going back to social media or email or checking ads over and over and over again. And I always encourage people because there's about 15 to 20% of people who just don't get sucked in by social media, but 80% of people get sucked in. And if you notice, because this will be the pattern, right? It's I'll, I'll, go back about every 20 minutes and I'll have this feeling of like, oh, I want to check. I need to check. I just need to see what's going on. So if that's you and you feel like that's That's you, I would try lasting as long as humanly possible into the day before the first time you go on social media. So I want to question the premise of really quick. So really quick is a lie. That's my big, like a big catchphrase, I think around social media, (laughs) really quick is your addicted brain trying to get you to be, to give it the dopamine that it wants. And everyone feels like, um, but I'm a smart person, but I'm really driven. I really have control over myself. So why can't I control this social media thing? And it's because all of the internet everything online is specifically created to suck you into it. Like that's its goal because it makes money when you give it your attention. So if you can think of it that way, in terms of it is not a safe environment to go on to, if I am a person who's susceptible to that dopamine cycle. Mm. So the longer I can wait in the day, if I have 20 minutes before my kids are ready for school, instead of sitting down and scrolling really quick to check in on stuff. If I find myself going back too often, get out a physical notebook, write by hand, get out a physical book, read a book like on like a physical hard copy book and try to stay away from the digital for as long as you can during the day, especially if your routine is drop the kids off, come back and try to write. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're able to write as soon as you sit down, I would try to wait to do social media, email and ad checking anything that gives you the dopamine hit of like, Ooh, there's something new. There's new information. Wait as long as you can in the day and preferably until after your writing is done. If you're able to write in the mornings, like which not everybody is, um, but that's probably the biggest piece of productivity advice is that I, I think we all fall susceptible or fall prey to the idea that Facebook or Instagram or whatever is our friend. Like it's all our friend. And so Mm -hmm. we need to know that Facebook is not harmless. Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, whatever, like email ads checking, it's not harmless. It will create a need to do it over and over again through the day. So the longer you can wait until you let the addiction in for the day, the better. That is, I think, such amazing advice and also so challenging too for, and and like, I think that's a truth bomb that you just dropped there is that it's not our friend because, you know, as indie authors, which many of my, you know, my guests have been um, like, there's so much pressure to like, you know, leverage the power of all of those things. Right. And to like harness that. And that's, 
that's going to be your way to get your book out there. And so it is a good reminder. Like you are also a user too. Like most of us are users before creators in terms of like what we go on for. So if you're a user first, this is especially important. Like if you are a consumer, if you're not a user first and you're primarily a creator and you don't have any interest in continuing to go back over and over again, um, then, then that's a different conversation and you can ignore everything that I just said. But most <laughs> of us, like I said, like 80 to 85% yeah. of us are users first and we don't know it because we think, oh, I'm only there to check my reader group. But mm-hmm. then I find myself scrolling and then going back every 20 minutes for the next six hours. And I would challenge some of you to list, to watch and listen to yourself the way that you talk about it. So when I say, don't reach for your phone first thing in the morning and I get the like it just freaks people out I'm like okay is that like is that an addictive response right there or like if it causes that much fear there may be something under the fear that we need to talk about because of course some people legitimately do like I need to coordinate with my ex to drop my kids off and I can't not do it on my phone that's very different from I need to check and see what's happened today on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Like that's a very different way of thinking about social media or phone use. Um, And that's what I want to challenge is just the idea that somehow we should be able to be in control of it. Why? Like, why do we think we should be in control? All the evidence suggests that we're not. So why do we think that? (laughs) Yeah, that is such a wake up call. Like, yeah, we do think like, I do think I'm in control. I'm like, I'm just doing my author thing. But am I? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. QTP questions. Are you? (laughs) Because some people are. Some people definitely are. Some people go on social media first for Mm. 15 minutes and don't ever go on it again for the rest of the day. If that's you, you can ignore me. Yeah. But if that's not you and you find yourself going back over and over and over again, like it's just mm-hmm. so dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah. One, another question that I heard in my, my call out uh, was, um, do you have like a top tip for authors that have, and I know you have a whole book on this, but uh, uh, that aren't seeing the sales in their books after they've put them out, like one thing that they could do right away. So this will be unpopular advice, (laughs) but I would say, don't worry about it. Like, yeah, like most books don't sell 98.6% of books don't sell. In fact, there's 4 million books in the Kindle store that haven't even been purchased one time. Like most books don't sell. Mm -hmm. And so if you're writing books that aren't, and again, this is like, if you can get beyond that, then there's other advice. Right. But um, Mm. because it it would be a individualized thing. Like, well, why aren't your books selling? What have you done? What are you writing? How clearly marketable is it? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there's a difference between writing something cross genre and writing something that is muddled marketing. <laughs> so if I don't have a very clear signal about which readers are supposed to buy this book, then that's a muddled marketing issue. And that's a different conversation altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, but just writing cross genre is not a problem as long as you know how to sell that book and who to sell it to. Mm-hmm. And again, this is part of why I think a lot of us get overwhelmed as indies when we think about like, 
my books aren't selling, my books aren't selling. And then you hear Becca say, don't worry about it. And you're like, wait a dang minute here, Becca. I'm like, that's <laughs> not okay. And But the reason I say that is because in any individual platform, and it doesn't matter whose platform you look at, except maybe like, maybe E.L. James, because every single book that she's written, I think has hit, you know, like whatever New York Times won. Um, and I think I, I may be wrong about that, but if you look at every single author out there, everyone has books that don't sell. Mm. Everyone has series that don't sell. Everyone has books that aren't marketable. And if you look at anyone who's taken off, who's been writing for a long time, they might have many books and series that don't mm. sell or that aren't marketable. And so just writing a book that didn't sell in and of itself isn't evidence of anything because mm. there's definitely a possibility that what you write in the future might still sell. You may still be able to make that work. Um, what we can't expect, and this is kind of the unfortunate you know, truth about the writing world, is that we can't expect that every book should sell equally. And there are so many reasons why that is true. And very few of them have anything to do with people's talent. Um, Cause you can be an extremely talented writer and for some reason, write a book that didn't resonate or that didn't hit or write a series that didn't resonate or didn't hit. It's still possible to do that. So the very first thing I would, I would say to people at the, like when you're coming and saying it didn't sell, I would say if, if the reason you're asking me about why my books aren't selling is because you need to go back and make those books sell, then we need to have a different conversation mm. because usually what I want is for us to say that was a learning curve. What did I learn from it? Like, am I doing something wrong? Should I be writing in a different genre? Am I trying to trend chase and not not doing it effectively? Um, am I like, is there something else? Am I muddled marketing? Cause muddled marketing is a big deal. Um, if, if readers cannot read the signals. So here's how I think of co book covers, blurbs and ad copy. They are right turn signals like on a, um, you know, traffic light, basically when it's green means go it's very quick for, and easy for me to read, turn right here, turn right here, turn right here. If I don't know what's going on inside the book by the cover, or I can't tell mm. whether I will like it or not by the blurb, the unfortunate piece about a, a saturated market is that readers don't have to choose to read things that confuse them. Mm. And if they don't understand whether or not to turn right here, then they are not going to turn right here. So most of the time, what I encourage people to do, and there are several people who do this now in the industry, thankfully, is to go and see a marketing coach and to try and figure out if there's something that I have done that I can learn from, mm. or if there's something mm. that I'm doing that I could build on. Because sometimes yeah. it really is, especially if you have like one or two books out in a series, and you come and say, why aren't my books selling? I'd be like, well, we don't know yet if they're going to sell like, or if you, if you only have one standalone and not five standalones, if you're writing in like thriller mm. or women's fiction, right. I would say, well, we don't know whether you're going to sell or not yet. You don't have enough books for us to make the determination for sure that like, well, you're clearly not going to sell. Um, cause this isn't New York publishing. 
I'm not paying you six figures and expecting you to produce a book for me to sell right now. This is indie publishing, which means we get to pivot and learn and have long careers mm. and not sell sometimes and sell other times. And I feel like that reorientation of like, where are we and what are the expectations of this industry is you could literally write a hundred books that don't sell and then write a massive bestseller. It's possible to do that. Mm. So I would say, don't take too much responsibility for what's happening in your platform because most books don't sell. And so if you're a good writer, which I assume that most people who listen to these podcasts are good writers, because it's very, very unlikely that you would continue to write and be attracted to writing if you're really genuinely bad at it. Like it's very, it's much more unusual than we think it is, but there's a difference between being a good writer and being able to write a good novel over and over again. Because writing a good novel that sells is extremely difficult. And if it wasn't, then we would see more than the top 100,000 books in Amazon selling every day. But it is extremely difficult. And so I would say there, there, there still is tons of runway in front of you. Keep writing. Keep learning from your past. Like, uh, reach out and find experts who can help you for sure, um, who, who are willing to listen to you and what you want. But I definitely would say, like, don't take too much responsibility mm. for your books not selling because it may not be because you failed in some way. It mm. might just be you're at the front of your learning curve or you haven't found your genre yet or your marketing mm. is muddled. Like <laughs> there are lots of reasons that are not you're stupid and you shouldn't be doing this, which is where we first go. Right. Like, yeah. Well, clearly I suck yeah. and I should just quit. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the answer. <laughs> That's not the answer. That's right. All comes back to that ego. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you. And I'm so glad that you left us on this um, note of hope. And you yeah. shared so much great um, practical insight and, um, and yeah, it was just really beautiful to, to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Wow. I have to say that the depth of Becca's knowledge about writing productivity is clearly so deep and we really only skim the surface of it in this conversation. I hope the talk has given you some insights into your own practice. And if you do want to catch up with Becca, best place to start is the Better Faster Academy, which is at betterfasteracademy.com. I will also put a link to her podcast, YouTube show, the quick cast in the show notes. Okay, so here are the top takeaways. Number one, setting boundaries are a powerful tool for showing your kids love and helping you pursue your writing goals. Number two, everything will not work for everyone, but also know that whatever your productivity issue is, there is a fix for it. Number three, delay looking on your phone as long as you can, because as soon as you start looking at social media, most of us will get stuck in a dopamine cycle that kicks in every 20 minutes. Number four, is your book not selling? Rather than worrying about it, this may be your opportunity to learn from it and to consider finding what your genre or voice really is. And number five, or another reason for books not selling could be muddled marketing. Remember, confused buyers 
don't buy. So consider seeking out a marketing coach if you think that might be the issue. Thank you so much for listening. You can connect with me and other listeners like Emily and all of the other great moms that contributed questions for this episode by joining the These Moms Write Facebook group or also by joining our newsletter. Links to both of those are in the show notes. I would love it if you could subscribe or like this podcast on Apple or Spotify. I will talk to you next week. In the meantime, happy writing.